We are in the middle of a series called Playlist. This is week number three, where we are looking at the Psalms. And the reason that we are doing that um, is because Psalms have been described as the prayer book of the human race. You heard Emily say from the top uh, of the worship set uh, today, Psalms are simple. They speak straight uh, to the heart. Uh, Calvin calls them a complete anatomy of the human soul. Like everything we need to navigate our emotional lives are right there in the Psalms. And our emotions, right, our feelings, are, they're very important because they reveal our hearts, but they should not lead our hearts. And that's how Psalms, um, that's how Psalms kind of helps us. So the way that we've said it every week is that God uh, writes the lyrics to our souls in the Psalms. That's what we find uh, there. And today we're going to look at Psalm number 81. It is a psalm of gratitude, like you heard Wesley uh, mention, this idea of practicing being thankful, having that kind of, uh, of an attitude consistently of being grateful for the things that God provides for our lives. And we're going to learn three things today from Psalm 81. Number one, life is a walk through the wilderness. Number two, in the wilderness, you're going to find honey in the rock. And number three, that rock is going to cause you to stand or to stumble. Now, if you have a copy of the scriptures with you, whether that's digital on your phone or a physical copy, if you look at the heading up above the psalm, um, what you'll see is that this is a psalm from the choir master on the getith, is what it, is what it says. Now, getith is a, is a Hebrew uh, word, and literally in Hebrew, it means on the wine fats. Kind of weird, isn't it? The, on the wine fats. But in their day, whenever you fermented wine, the oils would rise to the top. And when the oils rose to the top, you would skim the wine fats off the top and take those oils and you would put them on the strings of your instrument and those oils would strengthen the strings. Not really, I just made that whole thing up. <laughs> we don't really know what gateeth means, but that sounded good. I had some of you, some of you... God wants us to strengthen the strings in our lives, right? All right. Um, so I'll stop lying and start reading, okay? Psalm 81, <clears throat> 1 and 2 says this. Sing aloud to God our strength. Shout for joy to the God of Jacob. Raise a song. Sound the tambourine, the sweet lyre with the heart. So the first idea, life is a walk through the wilderness. And like I said, it's the choir master, so it makes sense. What's he saying? <clears throat> he starts off with worship. The, the tambourine, the harp. The liar, he says, sing, shout. And he's calling us to this idea of the corporate body gathering. So I'll say it to you this way. Gathering corporately helps you grow personally. I'll say that again. Gathering corporately on this walk through the wilderness helps you grow personally. And it's not just here. It's not just in Psalms that we see that. It's throughout the scriptures, really cover to cover. I'll give you an example Hebrews chapter 10, maybe it's a familiar verse to some of you, verse 25, it says, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day, as you see the day uh, drawing near. So it is obvious that on this walk through the wilderness, which, you know, we see historically in the Exodus, figuratively in other places, that what we need is to gather regularly, corporately, together because gathering together helps you grow. It helps you grow personally just by, just by being here, which creates tension, right? Creates this tension in our souls sometimes. If you're a parent, uh, a mentor, a teacher, a coach, and you hear that, it just 
sometimes, it, and, and it's a good tension, right? Because if you lead young people in any capacity, there's travel everything, right? You got, there's travel, fill in the blank with the sport, there's travel cheer, there's travel dance, there's every opportunity for you to not be here, right? And so you start to sometimes look, if you feel that kind of that tension of, oh, man, we haven't been to church in a while, right? Or maybe you look at your bank account and you're like, man, we're really investing a lot in uniforms and league fees and da-da-da-da-da, hotels and gas. And, and maybe we should invest our resources in things that really matter more long-term that are helping others and not just, I'm that's, a good, that's a good tension to feel. Because the writer of Psalms is telling us that it is important to prioritize gathering together corporately. Now, when we talk about get gathering corporately here, uh, we obviously talk about this, the Sunday gathering here, and we talk about life groups. Smaller groups of people that gather together during the week for the purpose of doing two things, connecting relationally and taking the next step in your spiritual journey. We have over 150 life groups, more than three-fourths of the folks who attend here on a Sunday morning are connected to a life group because I think they see the value that it helps them grow personally. So next uh, week, not this Sunday, but next Sunday, we'll launch our summer term of life groups. If you're not currently connected to a group, it's a great time to connect to a group. Most of our groups only meet every other week in the summer. So I think the scriptures would encourage us on Sundays and at life group, be there because we need each other, right? It's a reflection of our value of called authentic community. When we say authentic community, that we say that means we are family. And we all need that. We all need spiritual family. So if you're looking at the app notes uh, this morning on your phone, you'll see at the bottom of the app notes, there's a link there to our catalog. It's a digital version of the catalog. You can search geography. You can see what the groups are meeting about. There are physical copies of the catalog today in the lobbies. Pick one up, start to pray about getting connected to a group. That's one side. Now, the other side of the equation is it's not legal. Like there's nothing that says, well, you've got to be here 40 out of 52 weeks a year, right? There's not a number. So where does that leave us? Here's where I think it leaves us. That as we think about young people, we think about our own hearts as well, but the legacy that we want to leave to our children and to our grandchildren is that we prioritize spiritual, we have spiritual priorities that trump personal luxuries. And maybe it's not travel, sports, or travel, whatever. Maybe, maybe it's just travel. Maybe you like going here, being there, doing this, on the weekends, being, being out. And I think the legacy that we want to leave as we pass along faith is that we emphasize spiritual priorities over personal luxuries. Should I just go back to talking about the wine fats and making stuff up? It's in, in, this, in this text, he doesn't, just, um, he doesn't just talk about this generally. He talks about it specifically. Look at verse 3. Blow the trumpet at the new moon, at the full moon um, on our feast day. So the only time of the year that the Hebrews blew the trumpet on the full moon, at the new moon, on the feast day, one day a year, was at the beginning of what they called the Feast of Booths or the Feast of Tabernacles. It was a feast that was established in Leviticus chapter 23. Um, they did it every year. It was an annual feast. And what they celebrated was this idea that life is a walk through the wilderness. 
The Feast of Tabernacles was all about the wilderness one, the 40 years between God freeing the people from Egypt, from bondage and slavery there on their way to the promised land. God wanted them to remember that wilderness journey. In Hebrew, uh, the word is sukkot. Now, sukkot is the plural for like tabernacles, booths, right? Plural. It was the plural. In their world, our equivalent would be tents, really. So the plural is sukkot. The singular is sukkah, right? So say that with me on three. One, two, three. Sukkah. Come on, you can do better than that. One, two, three. Sukkah, right? That was the singer. So what everybody would do during this festival is that they were called to go out. They would gather uh, uh, palm branches and they would go out and they would take those palm branches, whatever they could find, and they would build a sukkah, a tent. And for eight days, they would live, in the, not in their house, but they would live in that tent. Now, it would be like me saying, you know what, there's something we really need to remember, something God's trying to teach us. So for the next week, you're going to go get a tent and we're going to go, I mean, the 40-year wilderness wandering, it was a glorified camping trip. That's really what it was. For 40 years, the people moved throughout the wilderness. They had the, you know, the cloud by day, the pillar of fire by night. Whenever God moved, the people moved. Wherever God went, the people went. And so they had to be ready to pick up and move at a moment's notice. They lived in tents. So if you can imagine, I would say, hey, we're all going to go live in tents for eight days. We're going to go camping and not glamping. A lot of you glamp, right? You got the big trailer that you pull. Not that. We're going to go get palms and we're going to make our, the best shelter. Why would we do that? Because God wanted the people to remember that the most important thing when they were in the wilderness wandering was his presence. That wherever his presence went, they went. When he moved, they moved. Now, what became interesting over the years is that they added a day uh, or an event to the, the last day of the feast. It was called the Great Day. And what they would do on the last day of the feast is kind of a way of celebration and party is that they'd get every, they'd get all the instruments out, they'd get all the singers out, and they'd have this big parade in the city of Jerusalem. Now, why in the city of Jerusalem? Because eventually what happened is that all the people came to Jerusalem to celebrate uh, this feast. And on the great day of the feast, they'd have this big parade through the city of Jerusalem, and they would parade all the way to what was called the water gate. And when we got to the water gate, they had this big pitcher of water. And they'd take that pitcher of water and they would pour it out on the ground. And when they did that, everybody went nuts. Everyone would cheer and shout because they poured water out on the ground. And you're like, well, that didn't make any, I mean, like, why was that a big deal to them? Well, there's a lot of debate about this in uh, Hebrew scholarship and Christian scholarship. And at least one, and I, this is the line of thinking I tend to go down, is that what the Hebrews were saying is God loves us so much and God was with us on this wilderness journey so much because, you know, they, they live in a desert and a very arid culture. We can waste water and God will still give us more. That God has chosen us because we are special. Now, you see, that's really the antithesis of what God was trying to teach them in the wilderness. God was trying to teach them that his presence was all that they needed, and now they're celebrating their specialness. If you've got, um, again, a copy of the scriptures and you're looking uh, there, you probably see a cross-reference to Nehemiah chapter eight, which is an, uh, an opera, or a, a, a happening in the Old Testament, an event where <clears throat> they did this event, and Ezra the priest is standing there at the water gate in the temple, right? They're pouring out water. We're special. But even in that, 
Even in the middle of all that, God still stuck with his people. Look what it says. The psalmist says it this way down in verse 10. I am the Lord your God who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. And listen to this. Open your mouth wide and I will fill it. God says, listen, what I want you to know is that I am what you need. I am the one who will satisfy your soul. I'm writing this lyric for you. I'm writing this psalm for you that I'm the one. You open your mouth wide. I'm the one who will bring you satisfaction. And yet, look at verse 11. But my people did not listen to my voice. Israel would not submit to me. So I gave them over to their stubborn hearts to follow their own counsel. So remember, they came up to the promised land right at the beginning of the, uh, of the wilderness wandering, and they sent spies in, 10 spies said, no way, the giants are so much bigger than us. Two spies said, no way, God is so much bigger than the giants that are in front of us. But all of the people went with the 10 spies instead of the two spies, right? And God says, okay, if you wanna choose your way over my way, that's okay. There are gonna be some consequences for that decision. So God says, I gave them over to their stubborn hearts. And you know what? God does the very same with us. If we want to make a bad decision, God says, okay, you can make a bad decision. It's your decision. I will give you to the stubbornness of your heart. But the miracle of Sakat is that God says, but even when you make a bad decision, I'm still with you. And when you go the wrong way, I'm still I am still going with you. Here's how he says it um, down in verse 16. But he, he, God, would feed you with the finest of wheat and with honey from the rock. I would satisfy you. So life is a walk through the wilderness and the wilderness has honey in the rock. You walk through an arid desert in their climate, their world, that's what a wilderness was. You're going to hit some rocks, Right? And God is saying, even in the toughest of times, even in the most difficult moments on this life that is a walk through the wilderness, when you hit those rocks, guess what you're going to find? You're going to find the sweetness with, with my presence with you. You're going to find the sweetest things on this journey because I'm not leaving you. Because you know how this works. On the wilderness journey, God's presence was in the tabernacle, the big capital S right? Sukkah, right? And the people would go to the tabernacle. Moses would go in. He would meet with God. But eventually, they lose the tabernacle, the mobile unit, the mobile temple, and they build a temple in Jerusalem. And when they built the temple in Jerusalem, that's where God's presence dwelt. And all the people came to Jerusalem to worship God, to see the presence of God when God's presence came down, met with the high priest there in the Holy of Holies. So the people would come to the temple. But it's all set up because hundreds of years later, a person of God leaves heaven and comes to earth. And this, this beautiful holy of holies that they had built in the temple, this place where God sat and the place where God dwelt, in our minds, if you think about it more like royalty, you would think about it like a throne, right? That this was the place that God dwelt. John chapter 1, verse, verse 14 says, but the word became flesh. The word, capital W word, that's Jesus. But the word became flesh, and the next word is and dwelt. He tabernacled. That's what that word is, same word. He tabernacled among us. 
So all of a sudden in the Old Testament, right, you've got to go to where God is. In the New Testament, what do we see? God comes to where we are, right? We don't have to go to him because he comes to us in the person of Jesus. He comes, lives a perfect life, dies a perfect death on the cross for your sins, my sins. Put in the grave, miraculously resurrected after three days to give us hope and peace and joy. This understanding that death, the stinger of death is taken out, right? And then he ascends back to the Father. But after he ascends back to the Father, that's when the real miracle happens. You're like, wait a minute, I thought the cross was a miracle. And it is. I thought the resurrection was a miracle. And it is. But an even greater or as great of a miracle happens on the day of Pentecost. Because on the day of Pentecost, what do the people sense? A mighty rushing wind come out of heaven and the Holy Spirit of God, third person of the Trinity, just as much God as Jesus, just as much God as the Father comes down out of heaven and all of a sudden indwells every single believer. So that means if you are in Christ, if you are in him, if you have received his gift of salvation, now instead of going to the temple, the temple has come to you. Instead of going to God in the Old Testament, God has come and he has taken up residence in your soul and in your spirit. And I know for some time, sometimes people will come and they'll sit down and they'll talk to me and I understand where you're coming from. I feel the weight, the the burden that I'm carrying, my sinful, my own sinfulness and my own struggles. People will say to me, man, you know, I just don't know how God can put up with me. I struggle with worry. Dean, I'm I'm, I'm fighting this, this battle with addiction right now, addiction to alcohol or addiction to drugs, or Dean, I'm struggling right now with, with anger, or Dean, man, this, this thing, this, this fight I've got going on with, with pornography right now is so difficult. And I want you to hear me say clearly, I'm not excusing your sin or my sin in any way. All of us should live in repentance. All of us should turn back God's direction, square up with him, right? Be in right relationship with him, not going outside of his boundaries, not excusing a bit of that. But at the same time, if you are in Christ, your sin does not define you. That is not what you should be known for spiritually. You are a son or a daughter of God, which means what? You are a prince or a princess of the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords and God's presence. You will eternally reign with him, seated on thrones, the New Testament says, in the heavenlies, and we will eternally reign with God. That is your identity. If I can say it to you this way, you are one incredible sucker. I've been waiting all week to say that, all week to say that, right? The the, the king of heaven has built a throne in your heart and he has come and occupied that throne. The the, the potential, the, um, the unbelievable, unimaginable power that sits on the inside of you and me is celebrated in the fact that what they only dreamt of in the Old Testament that God's presence was moved here and there and they'd have to chase it down, it is on the inside of you and me. It's taken up residence in us. And you're like, okay, well, how do I know that? How, can, is there a way to prove that? And the psalmist doesn't leave us. He doesn't leave us wondering. Look at uh, chapter 81 there, again, verse seven. In distress I called you and I delivered you and I answered you in the secret place of thunder. I tested you at the waters of Meribah. Now, if if you remember 40 year wilderness wandering, 
there were two different times that God brought the children of Israel to a place called Meribah. One is in Exodus chapter 17 at the beginning, really, of the Exodus movement. The other one is in Numbers chapter 20 at the end of the Exodus movement. Both times the people had come to God complaining about his care for them, complaining about what he wasn't doing for them, and about how they had this incredible physical thirst, and they accused God of just, you know, bringing them there to let them die of thirst in the wilderness. So Exodus chapter 17, Moses goes to God. And he's like, God, I don't know what to do with these people, right? I got no clue what to do. And God says, here's what you're going to do. Moses, you're going to go out to Meribah. You're going to take that staff I gave you, the one that turned into a serpent. Remember that stick? You're going to take that stick and you're going to strike the rock at Meribah. And Moses goes out, listens to God, strikes the rock and life giving, fresh, clear water flows out of that rock. And the people are like, God, we love you. God, we are, we are for you. We know you're for us, right? And there are these back and forth, back and forth. For 40 years, it's like this. Until you get to Numbers chapter 20, where they're almost at the end of the wilderness wandering. People come to Moses. Um, Moses, God's brought us out here to kill us. We're th- and Moses goes to God. He says, God, I don't know what to do. God says, Moses, I want you to go back out to Meribah. But here's the nuance. Moses, I want you to speak to the rock. I want you to trust in the word of God, not the way that you formerly handled. You trust my voice more than you trust what happened in the past. In other words, my presence, Moses, is what you need. But Moses is having a difficult time. You look at the beginning of Numbers chapter 20. His wife, Miriam, for 40 years, she just passed away. So Moses had just lost his wife. And if you could imagine what it would be like leading two and a half million people through a desert. I heard um, one of my favorite comedians is a guy named Brian Regan. And uh, I heard Regan say one time, he can't figure out why anybody wanted to be the president of the United States. Because he said, every morning when you're laying in bed, you're laying there asleep, somebody walks in and goes, ah, problem. Right? That's how you get woken up every day. Uh, another problem. Another, another. Like if you can imagine me and Moses, that was Moses' life, right? Hey, Moses, problem. Hey, Moses, we got another one. Tribe of Dan, problem. Hey, Moses, these folks over in Benjamin, ooh, big problem. I mean, that was Moses' life, Right? And his wife has just passed away and these people are whining and they're complaining. They're like, God doesn't care about us. And he's like, God's cared for you all these years. And listen, there's stress and there's pressure on Moses. And we know Moses eh, doesn't do great with pressure. Remember back in Egypt, right? He killed somebody when he got angry uh, that one time. And that's why he was on the run for 40 years out in the middle of the desert. So Moses, he doesn't get the nuance Verse uh, 10 of number chapter 20. Then Moses and Aaron gathered the assembly together before the rock. And he says, hear now you rebels. If you've ever led people, whether that's leading people at work or leading people in ministry, or there's always at least a couple of times where you'd like to look at them and go, Hear now, you rebels, right? I like angry Moses. There's something about angry Moses that I like. 
He says, hear now, you rebels. Shall we bring water for you out of this rock? And then Moses turns and he takes that stick and he just wails on that rock, strikes the rock again and again and again. And he's sinning. But God in his kindness still brings water out of the rock for the people. But because of Moses' sin, he's not allowed to go into the promised land. Now, he's allowed to see it, but he's not going to be the one to lead the people into it. And when Moses' life, when he's about to die, Deuteronomy chapter 32, he summarizes his life in a psalm. There's 150 psalms, right, in the book of Psalms, but there's actually 151, if you want. This is a psalm. This is a song that Moses wrote. This is the summary song of his life. And I'm going to give you one example of three of the theme, what creates the theme of the song of Moses' life. Deuteronomy 32, 3 and 4, he says this, I will proclaim the name of the Lord. I will praise the greatness of our God. He is the, capital R, rock. His works are perfect, and all of his ways are just. Moses says, listen, what I've learned, the summary of my life, is that God, that God is the rock. So see it, think about it, big picture, right? In, uh, in Egypt, in slavery, bondage, People are freed, 40 year, walk through the wilderness. At the end of 40 years, they go into a promised land. I think we see a similar progression in our lives. Born into this world, separated from God by our sin, in slavery and bondage to sin. That's what the book of Romans says. We meet Christ, we're free from our sin, and yet we find in this life is a walk through the wilderness. But even in the middle of the wilderness, what do we learn? God never wastes a wilderness moment. Never wastes a wilderness moment. All along the way, we're going to trip, we're going to fall, we're going we're gonna, to we're gonna have great times, tough times. God, never, God doesn't waste it. In. And what we find here is the presence of God over and over. And we make bad choices, it's okay. Maybe we get consequences, that's okay. God's still with us. But this is not our home. Life is a walk through the wilderness. In the wilderness, we find honey in the rock. But what are we aiming at? We're not aiming at this life. We're aiming at the promised land. The next life, what it is that's out there in front of us. So, the whole thing in the Old Testament was a setup. I think for John chapter 7. John chapter 7, Jesus is teaching in Jerusalem. And the text says that it was the great day of the feast. So if you could imagine in Jerusalem, Jesus is teaching at the water gate and everybody's getting set up for the big parade, right? And they're moving through the city and it's time for the big, the big moment. And right before I believe the big moment, John chapter seven, verse 37 says this. And on the last day of the feast, the great day, Jesus stood up and cried out, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. 
Can you imagine all the people are around? They're excited. They've done this celebration for so many years. They've got the picture. They're ready to go. And Jesus, hey, if I got to say something, just, I know we're about to get to the big finale and all, but just, if anybody's really thirsty, come to me. Anybody's interested in, in honey from the rock, come to me. You know what the next phrase is in John chapter 7? And out of him will flow rivers. Not trickles, not streams. Out of him will flow rivers of living water. How can that be? Because the spirit of the living God is present and resident on the inside of you. So the reality is, for the living water to flow out of you, the living water first has to be in you, right? So you have to have received this incredible salvation gift that God offers to us in the person of Christ. Instead of you having to go find the temple and you having to go chase the presence of God down, God has chased us down in the person of Christ. And it takes humility on our part. We have to shed this idea that we are special. We're so special, we can waste water. God did not choose you because you're special. God did not choose me because I'm special. He did not choose you because you are special, but you are special because God chose you. You see the difference? God didn't choose me because I have something to offer him, but you better believe that I have a whole lot to offer him because he chose me. And Jesus says, if you're thirsty, I just wonder if you are soul thirsty, if you are looking for the thing, and maybe you've been trying other things and those other things haven't quenched that spiritual thirst that you have. Jesus says, if you're thirsty, come to me and out of you will flow rivers of living water. You are one incredible. So this morning, to close our service, we are going to sing a song. It's not a song um, that we have sung here before corporately, but it is called, Thank You, Jesus, for the Blood. And the idea is that we have this sense of gratitude that rises up in us. We have this attitude of graciousness towards God. And out of that attitude of graciousness towards God, his spirit is resident. It sits enthroned in our hearts. So the song says, thank you, Jesus, right? For, thank you, Jesus, for the blood. Wash me white, save my life out of darkness into glorious life. And so for you and for me, we can get into the river. We can drink deeply from the love of God and his spirit. And as we do, we have something meaningful to offer the world.